listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Then they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked the disciples, What were you arguing about on the way? They were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about which of them was the greatest. They'd been scrapping amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest disciple. Which presumably meant they'd been arguing about who would have the position of prominence once Jesus had inaugurated his kingdom. They're positioning themselves. By this point in the gospel, according to Mark, the disciples had finally come to the realization that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one. And they were doing a bit of jockeying for position amongst themselves. Never mind that in the verses directly preceding their little argument, Jesus had told them that he was in fact headed toward death. A death that would not have the final word, but a very real death all the same. They certainly didn't understand that kind of talk when it came to Messiah. But they did think they understood something about the Messiah's kingdom. The Romans would be defeated. Israel properly restored. Jerusalem returned to its place as the city of David in which the King Messiah would be enthroned. And when that happened, well, the King Messiah would certainly need to have the right man serving at his side. Which of us is going to be? It's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. And so the fight went on. You have to wonder how they could so badly miss the mark. They'd heard his call to follow. They'd headed out with him on this strange winding road trip. Along the way, they'd heard him teach. They'd seen him restore people to health, both of body but also of spirit. They'd shared with him a meal of bread and fish that had fed multitudes on the hillside. And Peter, James, and John, they had accompanied him up the mountain. And they'd seen him standing in the presence of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And they'd heard with such clarity the declaration, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And yet for all that they'd seen and heard and experienced, they still couldn't quite get their heads around his message. The four gospel writers, Mark is the most unflinching in showing just how wrong-headed this bunch could be. In these verses, Mark does, however, show just one little glimmer that there was some little bit of insight beginning to click into place for them. When Jesus asked them what they had been arguing about on the way, they went silent. They were silent because the way he looked at them and asked his question struck them with the presumption of their argument. 
what had been driving their thin imaginations actually had nothing to do with this guy they'd been following. I find myself encouraged by that little glimmer, by their sort of embarrassed silence. At least at that moment, that bunch realized they didn't actually know everything. They didn't really get what he was about, and their silence was maybe a little openness. Well, about 40 years later, James is writing to the church communities that he has been connected with, what he calls the 12 tribes in dispersion. And he, as their kind of their spiritual and theological mentor, he, James, is facing some very similar presumptions and problems. And so he writes of bitter envy and selfish ambition amongst those churches, naming them as earthly, unspiritual, and even devilish in origin. And he points to their conflicts and their disputes, all of this going on in the various churches. He's not speaking theoretically. If you happen to get into conflict, here's some techniques for solving them. He's writing you are in conflict, you are fighting now, so I'm going to address it. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, and recall it's envy and selfish ambition that drives the argument that Jesus' own disciples are having when they try to establish which of them is the greatest. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Those conflicts and disputes among you, he writes, where do they come from? It's a rhetorical question. Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something you do not have, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in dispute and conflict. Now remember, James is writing his letter to the churches to communities that are, at least in principle, committed to following the way of Jesus, and they're actually doing it at some considerable risk in that social and cultural world. And yet here James is talking not only about their disputes and their conflicts, but also about murder. You want something you don't have, you commit murder. Is he serious? I mean, that's... That's a really pretty dysfunctional church community, isn't it? We all hear about conflict in churches, but come on, James, you're ramping it up. But he is serious. Whether he's referencing some act, literal act of murderous violence that has happened, or invoking some worst-case scenario, this is the way it's headed, he clearly wants to push those church communities, and by extension, this church community, to confront just how murderously destructive envy and selfish ambition can be in people's lives, but also, and maybe particularly, in community. As the New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it in his commentary on this passage, it is with penetrating insight that James provides us with a powerful analysis of human conflict. Verbal argument, private violence, or national conflict 
The cause of them all can be traced back to frustrated desire to want more than we have, to be envious and covet what others have, whether it be their position or their possessions. And so, James, writing to those early church communities, tells a hard and insightful truth, a truth about the extremes of what humans can be, as Bruce Coburn phrased it in his song, Rumors of Glory. Of course, James is also deeply committed to writing of the extreme that runs in the opposite direction, not just about violence and dissension and argument and envy, But he wants to write about the other extreme, wisdom from above, human life rooted in that wisdom. It's first pure, he writes, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So you see the extremes, right? He sets up on the one side this envy and conflict and murderous nature that can set into communities, and on the other, this community that can look at peaceableness. Grounded as he is in the Jewish wisdom tradition, and he's very grounded in that tradition, James shows himself to be eminently pragmatic in his approach to these matters of conflict and division on the one hand and a peace for those who make peace on the other. If your church community is caught up in all manner of disputes and if you are constantly in conflict with those all around you and if you are never quite satisfied with what you have always striving for something more, those for James are signs that things have become deeply disordered. If, on the other hand, there is peaceableness in your communities and in your lives, a willingness to work out and reconcile, this is an indication that you are rightly ordered in the wisdom that comes from above. That's so typical. I mean, that that kind of understanding rings through the book of Proverbs, for instance. That's so typical of the wisdom tradition. And I suppose it can actually sound just a little too neat, with the potential to court some serious smugness. I'm at peace with my life and my neighbors, so I must be wise. Which is why James also points to mercy, a willingness to yield the absence of partiality and hypocrisy as being fruits of true wisdom. And he recognizes that while each person must take responsibility for his or her own actions, there's also a need to acknowledge the spiritual roots of disordered actions and affections. So James not only writes of envy and selfish ambition as being rooted in the earthly, unspiritual, and devilish, he also counsels his readers to, quote, resist the devil. In Greek, 
the word is Diablo, which, like the name Satan, the Hebrew name Satan, is best translated as the adversary. His 1983 book, a book some of you may be familiar with, People of the Lie, the psychiatrist and person of faith, Scott Peck, contended that while we do need to take seriously the reality that evil is very much a spiritual reality, much bigger than the sum total of individual acts or persons, individual evil combined still doesn't add up to the the depths of spiritual evil, Scott Peck would argue. It's crucial that we not give that evil stature as God's opposite and equal. They are not two sides of the same coin, warring with one another for the heart and soul of creation, but rather the Satan, and Peck insisted on not dignifying the Satan, not dignifying it with personal pronouns or other forms of personal address. It's an interesting insight. The Satan, the adversary, is powerful only by way of lies. At the heart of that spiritual lie is the contention that we have no need for God, that we can do it on our own, that in fact we can be ourselves as gods, which of course is the temptation in those stories from early on in Genesis. Unveil that lie that we are self-sufficient and can be our own gods. And the adversary is exposed as having no real power. Or as James puts it, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead, James counsels, draw near to God, for God will draw near to you. Draw near to that which gives life to you individually and to you as a people together. Draw near to that which gives life, not to the lies that create that illusion of self-sufficiency and self-aggrandizement. I won't even try that word. Self, you know, you know. I'll be able to say it when I got it written in front of me. But that, that which says... I am going to continue to build myself up because I want that and I can have that. I can be the best and the closest to Jesus. I can be the top disciple. I have the stuff that it takes to sit at his right side. All of that stuff is illusion. Confronted by the embarrassed silence of his disciples, Jesus responded with a kind of enacted parable. He sat down called the twelve and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then Jesus took a little child and put it among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who has sent me. Child in that world had no status, no rights, 
really no claim on, on, on a role until they'd hit the age of 13 when they could be in, you know, moved up into adulthood as sons or daughters of the Torah. Yet he takes the statusless child, property of the parents, and says, now meet this child with dignity. Welcome this child in its full humanity. And when you do that, you're welcoming me, not only me, but the God who sent me. Live that way, do that, see people that way. The lie of selfish ambition and self-absorbed striving is unveiled. Welcoming the child, he takes those disciples, those thick-headed, struggling-to-get-it disciples, he takes them and he moves them another step towards the defeat of all death, and of all lies. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.